0: Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato, Sama, Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato, Sama, Samputasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arahato, Sama, Samputasa Putan, the monks and Namasami So we usually chant this three times before we give a Dhamma talk, just to kind of make it clear, you know, that this is a teaching which we have received from our own teachers, you know, and going down the line back to the the Buddha who has lived like over 2,560 years ago or so. So it's pretty amazing, you know, that the teaching is still available and... uh, tonight, I have been thinking about what I should share tonight. And I was thinking to speak about, uh, you know, the the hindrances and the enlightenment factors, how they relate to each other. And uh, because sometimes the enlightenment factors are also called anti or anti-hindrances, because they are opposing the hindrances. And there's five hindrances and seven enlightenment factors, but two of the five hindrances are actually a pair: slot and torpor and restlessness and worry. So it, altogether it's seven hindrances and, and seven enlightenment factors. And uh, you know, the hindrances they are like uh, hindering the mind from functioning properly. And there's you know lots of different uh, um, similes in the Sutta, you know, explaining how the, the hindrances what an effect they have on our minds. And a very well known example is that with the five different bowls of water. <coughs> I'm not quite sure if you've heard about that one. So like the mind which is not under the influence of any of the hindrances, is like a bowl of clear water, which you know, in ancient times, bowl of water was used instead of a mirror to just see your face. And if the water is really clear, then you know, we can see a relative realistic reflection of our own face. And then the hindrances are, for example, the hindrance of, of desire, or sensual desire, or lust and that's compared with a bowl of water where the water is colored with dye. And when you look into that bowl, what you see is not a realistic depiction of your face, but you know, a different one. And that kind of, you know, is a good example to when we are under the influence of desire or lust, then we, we tend to project that onto the world, you know, and then we see things in a, in a way which is not in accordance with reality and I'm sure you all have experienced that. For example, I know if you are, let's say if we are very, very hungry, you know, and then we go down the road, we, what we see, you know, what jumps at us is probably all shopping windows where there's some interesting food. and we are not interested so much in other things, because the only thing we really want at that moment is something to eat, and there's many examples, you know, which we could bring up, and uh, the next one, anger, (coughs) or ill will, that's compared with with a bowl of water, where the water is boiling, and steam is coming up, and the water is bubbling, and there's no way you know we could have a reflection of our face in that bowl of water. And the next one is a slot and top one, and that's compared with a bowl of water where the water is overgrown with algae, and also our face you know cannot be reflected in that bowl of water. And restlessness and worry is compared with a bowl of water where the water is stirred up by the wind. So it has rippled on the surface and there's also no way we can see our face in that. The last one is doubt and that's compared with a muddy water where the water is kind of mixed up with sand and things so we cannot it cannot see the face clearly either. And in terms of the The images which are given, you know, where the mind is free from the hindrances, the the mind free from desire is compared with uh, somebody who has settled a debt, you know, who is free of debt. So there's this kind of this constant thinking about the object of desire, feeling, you know, bound to it. It's like settling a debt and no longer have to worry about this. I'm sure you can relate to that. And then uh, the anger is compared to somebody who has recovered, you know, somebody who is free of anger, somebody who has recovered from an illness, from a disease. No longer, you know, kind of under the influence of that emotion. And then the... Sloth and Topa is compared with being released from prison. You know, in the meditation, if there's a lot of drowsiness, it is like, you know, it's very small space. The mind contracts and, you know, there's no. It feels like, you know, the walls have gone up and we feel like we can't really get beyond. Not enough energy. And restlessness and worry is compared to being released from slavery. You know, not having to kind of jump up and down and do this and do that that and whatever somebody else tells us to do. It's this feeling of having having agency over one's own mind. And the hindrance of doubt is compared with somebody who has, you know, successfully crossed over dangerous desert has come back from a dangerous journey and you know has come back well. So that's those images which are you know from the suttas and uh, in terms of the relationship between the, the hindrances and the enlightenment factors desire is, is um, paired with mindfulness so if there's desire in the mind to bring up mindfulness, then if we know it, you know, we no longer are under it. And we have, you know, we can step out of it. And then this, this image of having settled, that that can be applied for that. And then anger, hindrance of anger or ill will, the uh, enlightenment factor is investigation or curiosity taking an interest. In one's own experience and taking an interest for the conditions why it has arisen and also in the conditions you know which help to settle it, recovering from an illness. And then Sloth and Topwa, the anti-hindrances are enlightenment factor of energy and enlightenment factor of joy or contentment. And restlessness and worry, enlightenment factor, tranquility and collectedness of mind or a stable mind, samadhi. And the last one, doubt, the anti-hindrance is equanimity or equipoise. So that's how the hindrances and the and the factors of enlightenment, how they kind of work together, and you know, and any of the hindrances, as I said earlier, can be used as a launching pad for developing the factors of enlightenment. They are like, you know, like a compost we can use. You know, the weeds in the garden. If we kind of take them out of from the garden, we don't throw them away, but we use them to make compost, and then you know, put them into the garden and then those weeds, you know, which have been like an obstacle for for good things to grow, so to say, things which are wholesome for us, vegetables or flowers or whatever, those weeds, you know, they, the energy which is contained in them, we can't afford, you know, to kind of throw that away, but we can use it, you know, to benefit the, what we'd like to see grow there. And the same you know with the hindrances the energy which is contained in the hindrances we can't afford you know to lose that energy by suppressing it because then it's going to turn towards you know against us and you know become some kind of obstacle you know so you can become a very serious obstacle Really, it can turn into a physical illness or a mental illness or at least you know in a difficulties emotional difficulties and, uh, you know, being being very kind of confined in one's own way of, of being in the world. You know, not being able to access a wider range of experience or a wider range of response. So it's very important, you know, be able to contain the energy and transform it and uh, and then you know uh, uh, employ it in more skillful ways of of being in the world and you know those seven factors of enlightenment they are sometimes also compared in the scriptures as seven treasures, and they are compared with the seven treasures of a of a wheel turning monarch which is like a mythical figure in the buddhist cosmology and those seven those uh, such a monarch you know has seven different special supports like a an elephant a royal elephant and a horse and uh i think a, a general and a, a, a minister and like and different kind of things like this and, and, you know, they are compared with the seven factors of enlightenment because, you know, we can become ruler of our own minds, you know, through employing them and we can, you know, um, conquer our own minds through, through those seven factors of enlightenment. And, you know, mindfulness is the is the central one of those seven because mindfulness monitors the situation, you know, and sees what is needed. And then the other, the next three, which is investigation of dhammas, energy and joy or contentment, they are more the energizing ones. And then the following three, tranquility, collectedness of mind and equanimity are more the calming ones. And depending on you know, what's going on in the mind, mindfulness knows and then mindfulness works with whatever brings in whatever is needed in order to bring the mind into harmony. So either energizing the mind if we are kind of tired and you know not really enough interest, you know, to attend to the experience and then if we are not able to settle the mind then we bring in the last three and mindfulness is always you know there because mindfulness kind of um, is guiding that process and uh, you know according to the suttas there is the most important supports for this process to happen, the most important external support is spiritual friends and the most important internal support is wise attention. And you know there's a whole chapter in the Samyutta Nikaya, many many pages, big chapter which is called the Bojangha Samyutta and there's lots of suttas speaking about, you know, how to work with the factors of enlightenment. And I've just brought one along, which is about, it's called Feeding and Starving the Hindrances and the Enlightenment Factors. (coughs) And I was thinking to kind of read a little bit from that sutta, what's, what's mentioned there. And I think more about the enlightenment factors rather than about the hindrances. And so starving and feeding the seven factors of enlightenment. And, uh, you know, the starving is, of course, always the opposite of the feeding. So I was thinking I speak more about the feeding because that is what we are trying to do in this retreat and hopefully, you know, afterwards as well. So the first one is mindfulness, feeding mindfulness, frequent careful attention to the things that are the basis for enlightenment factor of mindfulness, mindfulness and clear comprehension in all activities and that's actually this list here which I'm reading out is, is from the suttas and from the commentaries as well and then yeah. Avoiding unmindful people, associating with mindful people and then feeding uh, states of Dhamma Vichaya or investigation of Dhammas. Frequent and careful attention to qualities that are skillful and and unskillful. Frequent, careful attention to qualities, to see if they are skillful or unskillful, blameworthy or blameless, inferior or superior, and those on the side of dark and bright. So, meaning, you know, really paying attention if whatever has a reason in the mind, if it's leading to, you know, to our own good and to the good of others or not. And that's considered you know the most important, um, the most important thing you know, or however we want to call this, in order to base our our decisions on. Questioning about the meaning of the aggregates, the elements, the sense spaces, avoiding unwise people, associating with wise people. And right resolution. So as you can hear you know that associating with wise friends or with spiritual friends is mentioned, it's in every um, section mentioned. Feeding energy, frequent careful attention to the element of initiative, persistence and exertion, reflecting on the negative results of laziness, seeing the benefits in arousal of energy, reflecting that one is following the path taken by all the Buddhas, reflecting on the good fortune we have in this lifetime, that we can, you know, that we've heard about the practice, that we have (coughs) enough health that we can practice it and that we have enough means that we can take the time, you know, to come to a retreat like this and that we are living in a country where the teaching is available. Reflecting on the greatness of the Dhamma. Avoiding lazy people. Associating with energetic people. Right resolution. Feeding uh, joy or contentment. Frequent careful attention to the things that are the basis for contentment and joy. Recollection of the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. Recollection of our own virtue. So, you know, recollection of uh, living according to the precepts. And, you know, what a special thing that is. Recollection of your own generosity. Recollection of the devas. The devas are the, the angelic beings in the Buddhist Cosmology, reflecting on peace, avoiding coarse people, associating with refined people, reflecting on inspiring suttas, right resolution, feeding tranquility, frequent careful attention to tranquility of the body and of the mind, (coughs) balancing faculties. The five faculties are wisdom and um, faith, energy and stability of mind and mindfulness. The five spiritual faculties. That's like an other list, you know, which is not, you know, not dissimilar to the seven factors of enlightenment. It's another way how we can look, you know, what the mind the qualities of the mind which needs to to be trained in order to, you know, see through delusion. They are called the five indrias. So feeding tranquility, balancing the faculties, nutritious food, a congenial climate, the right posture, effort at neutrality, which is, you know, equanimity, I think, Avoiding restless people, associating with calm people, right resolution. And then feeding uh, stability of mind, feeding samadhi. Frequent careful attention to aspects of things that are serene and free from distraction. (coughs) Balancing the faculties, the indria. Skill in focusing on your meditation object exerting, restraining and gladdening the mind at the right time. Looking on with equanimity at the right time. Avoiding unconcentrated people, associating with concentrated people, right resolution. And then feeding equanimity frequent careful attention to the things that are the basis for equanimity, a detached attitude towards beings, a detached attitude towards formations, inanimate objects, everything else, avoiding possessive people, associating with equanimous people, right resolution. And then it's also mentioned that the enlightenment factors are you know, perfected and fulfilled by development through the through arahantship at the path of arahantship, and the hindrances. You know, for example, the hindrance of sensual desire is is fully abandoned only also at the path of arahantship, because even you know, there's maybe no more coarse desires in terms of you know, wanting particular things or particular relationships, but still there might be like hanging on to, you know, channic states or states of of refined, uh, you know, states of mind, which is also an obstacle to our handship. And then ill will is fully abandoned by the path of non-returning. That's the uh, third uh, level of uh, enlightenment according to the Theravada canon and then um, sloth and torpor is fully abandoned with arahanship and restlessness and worry is fully abandoned with non-returning which is the third one third level and doubt you know doubt in the uh, teachings and doubt in the possibility, you know, for liberation is fully abandoned with stream entry, which is the first level of, of, uh, realization. But then, you know, we can still have doubt about, you know, should I, have I turned off the lights in my car, for example? That's not meant, you know. But also, you know, some people can have, like, a, a way you know of defending themselves from certain fears you know by kind of really obsessively indulging in doubt that's that's that hindrance you know would also be is something you know which might not be abandoned at that point because it's often related you know to ill will and to desire. So, and I don't know if, if you all know about the four levels of realization. Do you know the, those? So, maybe I should speak a little bit about that. There's, you know, four levels. The first one is stream entry. You know, when if somebody has for the first time seen, you know, the Dhamma, seen the unconditioned, then that's called stream entry or Sotapanna in Bali. And, uh, you know, according to the scriptures, there is uh, spoken about, you know, that we are bound to the wheel of becoming, bound to, you know, come back again and again through what's called the 10 fetters, which keep us, you know, bound to the wheel of samsara. And through the path of, of stream entry, the first level of realization, The first three fetters are basically permanently, you know, cut through. They are permanently let go of. And those three are, uh, you know, doubt in the path and in the possibility that that path can be, uh, you know, practiced. And the second one would be... um, believe in, in in rites and rituals you know thinking that if we are performing certain things or if we are reciting certain things that this will you know be bringing us to realization and uh, the third one is sakayatiti uh, in in uh, Pali or you know, believe in an unchanging self. So that's the first three fetters, you know, which are cut through by stream entry. And it said, you know, that someone who has reached stream entry is like basically in the stream of the Dhamma, and will, you know, for sure realize arahantship within. What's It's called seven lifetimes, which is a synonym meaning, you know, it's not long anymore. And someone, you know, who has realized dream entry will no longer be born under the level of a, of a human being. No longer born as an animal or a hungry ghost or any of the very unfortunate ways, you know, how one can take rebirth according to the Buddhist cosmology. So that's a great good fortune, you know to be able to rise above that possibility. And then the next level is, uh, it's called um, Sakadagami, and it's called a once returner. Someone I know who only one more time needs to return to the human form. And after that, uh, realizes full enlightenment. And a being, you know, who has realized that level of uh, insight, has, you know, cut the first three fetters, which I already mentioned. And then the next two fetters are about, you know, attachment to different levels of, of, of concentration like the chanas basically the, there's two levels there's the first four and then the, 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 the next four this is the fine material and non-material chanas and someone you know who has realized uh, one's return is no longer attached in that way or oh no, not. It's not true. Has has weakened the attachments, in in uh, has has weakened greed or lust, and and ill will, but not completely uh, cut through. And then the next one, the non-returner. That's uh, you know a being or a mind string which needs no longer to take birth in the human realm but in one of the higher realms and being like this has completely cut the first five fetters and then there's still five fetters left uh, five higher fetters which are only you know completely let go of at the level of arahantship and they are I hope I can count them all off now I think I said something wrong actually before the thing with the chanas they are coming now actually so the first three fetters are the three mantra then the next two fetters are just simply desire and ill will and they are kind of attenuated for the once-returner, and they are completely let go of for the non-returner. And then the five last fetters are actually the attachment to different levels of concentration, fine material and non-material levels of concentration, which are, you know, uh, the first four chanas are considered fine material states of concentration, and the next four are considered non-material and then, with the path of arahanship, let's go of the last five fetters, which are those concentration states, and then the, the next, the remaining three are restlessness, conceit, and ignorance. And conceit is kind of related to the. You know the personality view, which I spoke before Sakaya like did, you know, believing in an unchanging self. and the conceit is more, for example, thinking you know i'm I'm the same as you, I'm better than you, I'm worse than you. That's what conceit is. and the conceit is is seen as as like a a little leftover, you know, after the personality view has been. Let go of there is still that conceit or pride, you know, in one's own kind of accomplishments or, you know, the envy in seeing others' accomplishments. And that's only let go of with arahantship. I think that's, you know, good to know. So don't worry too much. <laughs> <laughs> and even, you know, in restlessness as well. So I think it's it's a that's a it's a good template you know to to know and uh, and especially you know the first three factors are important to reflect upon because they are the most important ones you know to to get a hold onto one's own mind to reflect you know about do I have doubt about the practice you know or not or do I have doubt in my own capacity that I can do this and you know, looking at how do I believe that I'm having some somewhere some unchanging something in me or not <coughs> and the belief in rites and rituals you know and it doesn't necessarily need to be you know like uh, about bowing or things like that, it can be just whatever you know kind of Obsessive attachments we have to doing things a certain way, you know. And when I was in you know, Amaravati, Arjuna Sumedha was often, you know, teaching on the first three fetters and, you know, instructing us to just reflect on our own mind and seeing, you know, how if they are operating in our minds or, or how they are operating in, in our minds. So, you know, and what what becomes really clear through the practice, you know, through feeding the enlightenment factors and starving the hindrances. You know, we just get an ever clearer kind of picture of, you know, how the mind works and how conditionality works. And, you know, it becomes more and more clear that the, the grasping, You know, which we're experiencing in terms of wanting or not wanting, it is not done by a self, but it's much more that the experience of that there's a self is actually created through the grasping, and that would be you know like uh, to have really fully understood that that's like that would be stream entry, to really understand that there's nobody in there, you know, who is doing this who is driving you to do this or to think this or to want this or to not want this but it is that wanting you know which is like the momentum in the mind (coughs) which we can train you know we can we can de-escalate that momentum through the practice we can you know kind of gradually de-escalate it through putting in, you know, stops and to through putting up boundaries and through, you know, kind of guiding that into the right direction. And then it becomes more and more clear that, you know, when that momentum kind of dies down, the experience of being an ego or being someone also becomes less intense, you know. And then there's more and more possibility, you know, to, to make wise choices, and through making wise choices, you know, our lives get empowered, and if our lives get empowered, then our minds, you know, get empowered, and it's just like, you know, and the whole thing kind of becomes more and more kind of a, you know, personal strength and of mind and, and agency, you know, in the, in the world, in terms of you know you know living a life you know which is more and more dedicated you know to realizing enlightenment and we don't have to you know kind of uh, we don't have so many obligations anymore you know which take us away from which take our energy into areas we don't want to go. But because, you know, certain, certain um, things have been set in motion and then we need to, you know, we can't immediately stop all of this. It takes, takes time. So I think that's what I wanted to share and uh